Hello, friends. Welcome to the Christ and Coffee podcast. Today, we have one of my good friends, Jung-Un Lee, who's an adjunct professor at the American University School of International Service, joining the program to talk about uh, what is going on in the world, uh, what we could learn from the current events, and try to just get a clear understanding of what both sides are thinking, and uh, just to learn from his expertise. So Jung-Un, welcome, my friends. Good to see you. Good to see you, Reverend Dr. Hike. You could just call me Hike. <laughs> yeah, but uh, you, you're, you're, what courses are you currently teaching? Uh, I teach two courses at American University this semester, one for undergraduates. The title is Islam, Peace, Global Security, Conflict Resolution Gateway Class. And then for graduate students, Theories of Foreign Policy Decision-Making. All right. We definitely want to make sure that that's happening in the world. Uh, it's yes. good that you're te teaching on that. So uh, I, you have a very fascinating uh, upbringing. Uh, so you're, you're South Korean. Yes. But you grew up in St. Petersburg, Russia. That is correct. Yes. My parents well, are missionaries. So I grew up in Russia in 19, since 1994, age seven, and lived there for 11 years. And what was that like? How is it being a, a South Korean Christian in St. Petersburg, like a couple years after the collapse of the Soviet Union? I must say, I grew up experiencing phenomenal time of transition in Russia, especially in the 90s. Probably it's easier to adopt when you move to a different country at younger age. So I adapted a lot easier than my parents. So I can say that. But now, nonetheless, yeah. yes, Russia was different from... South Korea in many ways, yes. What was it like? I mean, you just, at seven, you start like just learning how to speak Russian all of a sudden, or what, what were some of the changes? It was even more complicated than that because I went to an international academy for school. So yeah. I would speak Korean at home, speak English at school, speak Russian at church. So three different languages in, in a daily life. Wow. Wow. And you, I mean, we, we knew each other since undergrad and it's always been fun right. uh, just talking about these things. And I just figured it's been, let's like take it to the podcast, but I always appreciate your perspective on explaining uh, conflicts or mm -hmm. political tensions uh, without taking sides. So I, I actually would love to hear your, your understanding of what's currently happening uh, between Russia and Ukraine. It's, well, it's a war. It's been going on now for six days since last Wednesday. Obviously, I think there's a two factor. One is there's definitely a strategic tension that has been going on for at least 30 years between Russia in the East, Europe and the West, Europe and United States on the West. So there's one issue. And second, there's also been a long years of tensions between Ukraine's sovereignty and Russia's understanding of its geopolitical status. So two factors seem to come together into the military conflict that we see today. Okay, and what, what so it's, what, what, what's causing the attack? Like, like is it just the, the Western uh, world? Like, where does like the Western world play a part in all this? I would say there's a two factor. Obviously, if you take it from if you approach from Russia's perspective, Russia has long been critical of NATO's expansion toward the east. So 
moving from Western Europe to Central Europe and potentially including NATO as a, including Ukraine as a NATO member, Russia has seen that as a security threat. So that has been an issue for Russia. So that's Russia's perspective. But from Ukraine's perspective, Ukraine as an independent sovereign country feels that it is entitled to make its own foreign policy choice. So if Ukraine chooses to be a member of a NATO, then Ukrainians would argue that is Ukraine's own sovereign decision. So, right. it, so I, I would say there is a clash fundamentally between Ukraine's perhaps self-determination versus Russia's understanding of regional security. Two, two values seem to come to a conflict. So the, the, this sort, the, this, these two aspects of uh, yes. uh, self-determination and, and security for nations, I feel like it's kind of like the baseline to any post-Soviet Union yes. uh, satellite country. Uh, I mean, we've experienced that with Artsakh War last year. Um, but can you, can, just, can you elaborate a little more on that theme? Because I know you specialize in, uh, on, on these conflicts uh, in your research. Can you just give some more light about like, because it's like it's, it's like the 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 carving out of Stalin has has re repercussions uh, geopolitically across the, the the former empire of the Soviet Union. Oh sure, definitely. Obviously, from Russia's perspective, the past thirty years after the fall of Soviet Union has been, in many ways, it's been a difficult time for Russia when they have lost their status and prestige as a superpower, certainly there is a nostalgia for return back to the kind of um, geo geopolitical influence in the region. So there's issue of respect, an issue of security in which Russia feels as if its neighbors are increasingly turning against Russia and joining alliance with Russia's historical rivals, such as United States. So there is that one factor. But on the other hand, from the perspective of, as you mentioned, former Soviet republics, including Ukraine, there is also a strong element of desire to be perhaps um, be free from the post-Soviet legacy and maybe redefine the identity. So for Ukraine, I know there are many in Ukraine who would want to think of themselves no longer as post-Soviet republic, but as a European country. So there is the desire as well. I guess my regret though is that likely Ukraine's desire to be a European country is a perfectly reasonable decision from Ukrainians, but it seems current Russian government see that as a um, sign of expansion of Europe into Russia's neighboring space, that they see it as a um, coercive inference on Russia's identity and Russia's place in the region. Got it. Um, and where, where, where would this kind of conflict, like, where do you see this all heading? Is it, do you see your analysis of any, any stories that are similar to this? Do you, do you think of any insights you could give? Because I think a lot of people are like, what's, what's, the, what's the end game here? That's a good question. So as a international studies, I do have sometimes concerns about using historical analogies because I believe that every historical events are a little bit to greatly different from each other. Right. But some things that comes to my mind is that um, 
people are right now saying in the news that this war between Russia and Ukraine could be the first of the new Cold War, or maybe the hot war of the new Cold War. I'm a Korean, so sometimes I think of the Korean War, 1950, which was arguably the first hot war of the old Cold War. Yeah. So thinking of that, Korea, which was neighbor of Soviet Union back then, and a peninsula, Korean peninsula was where the two ideological blocks came to a clash, North Korea versus South Korea. I've, I've realized that in that sense, Ukraine has become against their will, a crossroad in which two powers, Russia and the West is coming to a collision. What could happen? I mean, I'm still, depending on how the war happens, continues this week and next week, some outcomes are possible, for instance, one, Russia could lose. That's a possibility. Russia yeah. could lose and retreat. That's one possibility. Second, Russia could gain its, its superiority and force Ukraine to become openly declare itself to be, say, a neutral state, a buffer state. So not West, not Russia, but some kind of a, um, a buffer area between the two powers. That's you know, to be very realistic, that's a possible outcome that we need to consider. Yeah. And third, I hope it doesn't happen because I know what that, as a Korean, I know what that meant for Koreans, but, you know, since I have to be honest about my IR international relations analysis, partition. It could be that Russia might try to settle the conflict by demanding some parts of Ukraine as a territory, and Ukraine becomes divided with much of Ukraine joining the West and becoming European while certain parts of Ukraine remaining under Russia's influence. So Russia's defeat, Russia's defeat, Ukra Ukraine becoming itself as some sort of a neutral buffer state, or Ukraine itself becoming partitioned into two areas. As right now, three possible outcomes, not just me, but other analysts are discussing. And what are what about the ripple effects of all this? What, what do you do? You see this going to spill over oh. to the the rest of the, the the former satellites, or just like a lot of talk is happening about China maybe wanting to grab Taiwan? Um, what anything? Or I mean, I know you know it, we can't predict the future, but I'm just yes. cur curious because you you spend a lot of time analyzing it. Uh, it's a geo it's a geopolitical earthquake to be sure. I would argue that in some sense it could change foreign policy of United States as drastically as the 911. So 911, I mean, I, I was alive, you were alive, Hike. 911 changed US foreign policy. It, it, it led US into 20 years, right? 20 years of war and peril in the Middle East, changed how US viewed the world. This event, this war, the first major war since the Cold War. Number one, it seems to make U.S. become more, again, aware of importance of Europe. So it could lead to European countries um, rallying behind the NATO. So after years of a talk on why do we have NATO, maybe at least in Europe countries are realizing that at times like this, maybe you do need military alliance like the NATO. That's one factor. So Europe. Second, China. China's an interesting question because the funny thing is, until two months ago, people would have told you, myself included, that China and U.S. is where the new Cold War will be. That's what our prediction is. But it seems like the Cold War has shifted from China 
to Russia. So from China's perspective, that may not be such a bad thing because it deflects the tension of the war and tensions to another continent. So it could, it could actually be not so bad alternative for China in that sense. And how would you describe like the relationships between China and Russia right now? That is very interesting. Right now, due to their mutual desire to restrain the United States, there is at least a tactical, I, I wouldn't use the word alliance, I would use the word alignment. In, in my literature, there is a fine difference between formal alliance between with that and alignment. There's an alignment of interest between China and Russia. So that's true. The question though is, can they really be good partners? There's reasons for doubts. Number one, historically, China and Russia didn't really get along that well, even during the Cold War, the old Cold War. Mm-hmm. One factor. And number two, China is right now more powerful and more rich than Russia. Right. And Russia, there's part of Russia that resents that. So in that sense, there is a hidden jealousy, envy, and rivalry also between Russia and China. So that has been an obstacle that prevents the two countries from becoming closer. Got Which it. is why I'm noticing that so far, war is going on in Ukraine. China is very careful. It's walking on a tight rope. So it's not condemning Russia, but it's not openly siding with Russia either. So I see that China's delicate balancing act. And I think that's very intentional. So alignment, not alliance, versus like NATO being an uh, alliance, right? Correct, yes. And just can you like tell me the history of NATO? Like I know like I always heard it, but uh, just to recap my, my old international study days, like what's NATO? Like everyone's throwing around NATO. What? What's what? It, how? Why was it created? What? What's? What's the purpose of it? Good question. The very purpose of NATO is partly a reason why Russia has animosity toward this organization because NATO was established in 1949, a Cold War alliance against Soviet Union. So Western European countries, supported by the United States, formed the alliance, a collective security arrangement in which if one country of NATO is attacked, it will be a threat seen for entire NATO member states. So in the Cold War, there was NATO and Soviet Union also an alliance called the Warsaw Pact. Warsaw Pact and NATO. After Cold War, the Warsaw Pact dissolved. Soviet Union, oh, okay, that's gone. So Russia initially thought NATO might also dissolve because there was no longer a need for a Cold War alliance. NATO did not dissolve. Instead, it continued to expand, and countries previously were Soviet allies, so Russia's ally, like Poland, the Baltic states. Mm-hmm. Now they are NATO allies as well. And that leads to question on what is the purpose of NATO if it still exists? That's a great question, because it's it's the uh, and I think so like growing up when you were in Russia, like what what were your did they teach you on this stuff or or was it like how was the the media consumption and then and let's talk media because i think i think my frustration with this whole events is how the media in the west and the media in russia have been kind of like setting up this moment of history where i felt like if there was proper yes i feel like if there was more peacemaking initiatives 
uh, we could be avoiding this, but that just me being naive. But but what was it like? Just like what was the media narrative when you grew up in Russia? I'm, I'm just curious. Okay. Two things. So since I went to the international academy in school, Western education, primarily founded by Western missionaries, the school curriculum itself was you might say more Western oriented. So that's one thing. But I do recall two things. 1990s. During the time of transition, Russia went through a difficult economic depression, recession. And many Russians who were initially optimistic about democracy and market economy, they became disillusioned. And there was a view, I mean, partly true, partly exaggerated, but there were belief among many Russians in the 1990s that somehow West abandoned Russia, West manipulated Russia, the West backstabbed Russia. So West gave this false hope to Russia that if you only accept democracy and market economy, good things will happen to you. You lied. It's not going well for us. So there's that sense of betrayal among Russians. And in 1990, so this is a time of war in Kosovo. So it's small, I guess fairly a smaller relatively speaking, a smaller war between the Yugoslavia and Kosovo when the NATO engaged in bombing to protect the Kosovo ethnic population from Yugoslavian government, Russians felt resentment because they felt that NATO was taking advantage of Russia's weakness to show its military muscle in the Eastern European area. And that made, at the time, many Russians felt a need for a strong leader, a leader that could stand up to NATO, to Europe. And at that moment, a person stepped in to reflect the desire, and that person is today's president of Russia, Vladimir Putin. And how, so, and how he's been in power ever since, right? He's yes, 20 years. 22 years, yes. And so would you say like, because of that, like Russia never, it never embraced democracy. Historically, it's never been, it's used to having like czars, uh, Mark, like uh, Lenin, Stalin, you know, like it. I guess, the, I guess if, there, if, if, if we could use the word democracy, if there was the brief honeymoon, so to speak, maybe the eight years of Yeltsin, so 1991 to 1999, the eight years may have been very corrupt economically suffering great recession, but politically, more or less, it was democracy for eight years of Yeltsin, but many Russians were not happy with what they experienced. And that led to desire for, the term was Russian democracy, a Russian democracy for Russian people, which became the catchphrase of Putin's government. Russian democracy, what does that, what, what does that mean? You just keep picking the guy you like? Or, or, it may actually no. You may be right. You may be very blunt, type, but you may be right. <laughs> so the democracy in which yes, people would elect one person, giving that person all the authority necessary for the country. And so yes, what, what what's the data on like Russians? Do you have any data on like um. Like how many Russians are for this war? What's what's ah, it? The, the, okay. So the funny thing is, just this morning I was talking with my colleague about this because you know there there are surveys 
carefully conducted surveys about Russia, the Russian public opinion, of February 23rd. Oh, this is, so one week ago, right? So bef right before the war started, apparently there was a survey conducted asking Russian people who they blame for the increasing sanctions on Russia. And the major, so there's two things. Majority of the Russians felt rest was to be blamed for the sanctions they, play, they put on Russia. So there were a majority who would put the blame on the West, that's one factor. And yet another poll asked what they thought about the current government and increasingly very surprising significant percentages expressed none, no opinion or refused to say. Wow. Maybe, so they, there seems to be maybe not active dissent, but there seems to be people who would either not want to express so want to not show express opinion or don't have an opinion. So apathy, indifference, and willing to decide, that seems to be increasingly expanding within the Russian public opinion. Yes, the uh, nuns, not pro, not against, but the nuns. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, because I'm. it's interesting to see like, uh like what the what what is the common shoulder on their ground feel about like the invasion of ukraine because it's it's the the russian army is also very mixed politically ethnically Correct. I mean, yeah i, I mean it, it, you know my, my parents are still in russia so uh, listening to what they say there's a generational divide so older generations of russians are much more it could be because maybe they get their information from russian media at least that could be part of the reasons they seem to be more supportive of the narrative Russia versus the West that we are in a crisis against the West that seems to be a narrative they buy the older generations younger generations are skeptical of even if that's true why we had to go to a war with Ukraine a military solution so many younger generation Russians are not understanding the justification of this war so generational divide yeah and i think it's probably something very similar in america uh in the sense of like we 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 grew up not like at the tail end of the cold war like mm -hmm. so we have this sense of like we don't remember it but i think also where we consume our news is part of it because i think like my from my experience with american media and the various presidencies it's either been like we demonized Russia or we were dismissive of it. I don't think we had a very constructive policy. Uh, I think it was like, like let's just kind of like bring back the Cold War mindset or like they're, they're, they're very weak now. Let's like ignore them, even though they have nukes, nuclear weapons. <laughs> so so I, I feel like it's always been like a shift of that since the fall of the Soviet Union, which is not constructive. Um, but I think this is fascinating because I think there's this younger generational internet generation yes. that, that is more connected than anyone else in the history of connectivity, which is really interesting that there's that divide. And I'm, I'd be curious to see similar polls of young and old in America. Mm. Um, I mean, I guess the, the there's this and that, but I mean, as a Christian podcast, as Christians, like whenever there's war, we need to be anti-war. Um, yes, and, yes. Uh, diplomacy is needed. I, I, I think with everything we know today, it's, it's, it shouldn't be, 
it's a lose-lose. There's no victors in war. And, and, and being passive and letting like wars happen is also part of the problem, I think. I think we've been so used to not having a serious war like this uh, on, a, on a big scale where there's many nations involved in a long time. Um, so, so I think it might be a, like a wake-up call. The other thing, too, is, uh, I mean, nuclear the nuclear weapons haven't gone away. <laughs> I mean, it just takes just foolishness, mistake, miscommunication. Uh, I, I, I would love to see more anti-nuke protests uh, from the church. It's kind of like we assume like this is not an issue anymore. Hmm. So what, what are your thoughts on just the nuclear aspect of, of war now and in, in diplomacy? Because I feel like it's, it's since the end of World War II, um, war is never going to be this quite the same. That's true. In some sense, because wars are evolving, I would argue that, for instance, right now, military analysts would say if there's two technologies that's getting really popular right now, for good or for bad, maybe more for bad, I guess, is once the drones, the drones are becoming increasingly a popular technology, and cyber. So cyber attacks are also becoming increasingly prominent. So those are the technologies being used, which ironically means that countries may fail the incentive that they don't have to use nukes because there's other cheaper available technologies to use, like drones and cyber attacks. So that seems to be a trend. Yeah, absolutely. But that's the that's the modern warfare. Literally someone controlling drones like a video game and killing yes. people. Um, yes. And then the cyber realities of it all. And I'm, I'm curious to know what's going on right now with all the cyber attacks. Right. Um, mm. Now let's let's move over to sanctions. His, historically, analytically, do you think these sanctions are going to have an effect or it's going to just make people more resentful and resilient? Uh, what, what do you think is going to happen with the Russian sanctions right now? That's a good question because it is hurting Russians. So let's see, just to give you some deep, some like facts. My, okay, it, it's in the news and I heard from my parents as well. Russians are right now standing in long lines to ATM to get the money out. A, the ruble Russian currency is plummeting. I heard the Russian stock market is crashing and it appears US is putting more and more of those financial bank restrictions on Russia. So. Russian financial state is not very good right now. So that's a one big factor. And it's not just economic sanctions. There's this cultural sports boycott. So it seems like Russia, the FIFA, which is responsible for organizing World Cup soccer championship, they just announced that as long as the war continues, Russian sports team cannot play in World Cup. That's just one example, but Russian cultural sports team are facing an international boycott. So Russian's public is facing the reality that they, as of now, at least they are being isolated. And that is gonna leave a huge impression on them. Now, what does that mean? Would that force them to further defend their regime or would that cause them to realize that they are suffering because of a war they cannot justify and that leads to bottom-up pressure on Putin, the government, and the president to cease fire immediately. I wish I could tell you right now, but as of now... But, 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 but his, I mean, they also got banned from the European Song Contest, uh, yes. Eurovision Song Contest. Yes, they, they were, yes. Um, 
but yeah, I think soccer is going to hit the, the the fact that they're not going to be participating in soccer yes. is huge. But has there been a has there been sanctions of this proportion ever historically? And like, can you like think of other like sanctions that have worked, have not worked? I'm just curious because it's I think this is the first major sanctions yes. uh, with in the age of internet and with all the yes. cultural connectivity. So it's going to be really a fascinating case study. But it is. But but so, in, in general, what are your thoughts on how effective sanctions are? Because this, this is I know this is a unique one, and we don't want to say history repeats, but there's yes. there's elements of rhyming. <laughs> yes, it's hard because I mean we have histories of when sanctions didn't really change the regime. I mean, perfect example, Cuba. Sixty years of sanctions didn't really change Cuban government one bit. So that's one issue. I guess if if, if someone wants to cite one possible example where sanctions might have worked. Maybe South Africa, the apartheid regime, international sanctions. It wasn't the only reason, but international sanctions at least had some role in convincing South African government to remove its racial apartheid segregation policy. So that might be a success. So, okay, so there's a mixed case. Russia is interesting because it's such a big country. So big country, big economy, which means A, they have resources, but they also, they also need resources from other countries as well, finance as well. So, hmm. well, I think you answered it. I think that's those are two good yes. examples. Cuba, uh, not really working. And then uh, South Africa pressured. And, and then with that, you have this nonviolent reconciliation effort within. Yes. So I, but I feel like that's that's going to probably be the key. There has to be transformation within and also pressure yes. outside. It can't just be, I guess, one if we would conclude. Um, but yeah, I think that's 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 good to that's good to think about. Um, the other thing you talked about resources. So, like, how much of this war is just Ukrainian resources or the ports and stuff? Like, because usually there's that's usually behind a lot of all of wars is like the resources. So, what what's the resource game in in this conflict? I would say for Russia, the most important thing is the land itself. Ukraine is a big neighbor. Being a geographic buffer would be very important. That's number one. Yeah. Number two, um, so there's the oil, right? So Russia has been exporting gases to Europe. That oil has been going through several pipelines, one of which goes to Ukraine. So Ukraine is that middle zone in which Russia's trade with Europe occurs. So that's another factor to consider. Um, what else? I guess another factor would be, I've, heard, I, I've read reports that Ukraine is called the breadbasket of Europe because it's an agriculture rich area. So that's just for Europe, but the grain, the production is also important for global food market, global supply chain. So, I mean, if the economy is destroyed, I, I worry that agricultural productions in Ukraine will be hurt very badly. I, I seriously worry that, but I guess the, the, the grain capacity of Ukraine is another resources that Russia might consider as well. But as of now, it seems as if it's less about the natural resources and more about a territorial concept related to border security that seems to affect Russia's decision, and maybe maybe some sort of like an ideological concept of Ukraine being former Soviet country, so it should be close to Russia, and Russia cannot give that up. 
So normative, con normative construct might be an important element as well. Normative construct. All right, Jong-on, we're about to wrap up. Any final thoughts you'd like to, to communicate or, 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 or say as we conclude this lovely conversation? Well, weren't you going to ask me about my research? <laughs> oh, yeah, okay. So uh, <laughs> I was, but tell us about your research, Jong-on. Well, I am so trying to complete my dissertation this year, and it's, gonna, it's on alliances. So I'm focusing on conflict between the great power and a small ally within alliances using case studies in the Cold War, Korean War, Vietnam War, and the Soviet-Afghan War. So I'm studying about how even the superpower has difficult time controlling their allies because when the allies perceive that a superpower's decision goes against the fundamental security and well-being, there's going to be a conflict. There's going to be a resistance. So I'm trying to study from the allies' perspective why a smaller ally will still take risk and sometimes say no to a great power's demand because it happened in all three wars, Korean War, Vietnam War, and the Soviet-Afghan War. So what happened with the Korean War? So you had, like, for example, just... Ex example, so in Korean War, Korea wanted to continue the war until Korea could be reunified, North and South, while U.S. position was ceasefire, end the war with two Koreas separate. So there was a dis strong disagreement, and South Korea, fearing for its future security, resisted the demand for a ceasefire. So that was an important conflict in which U.S. had to make some major concession in order to change South Korea's mind. So I look at that. Same with South Vietnam. South Vietnam, in retrospect, maybe for the right reason, they also did not want U.S. to end the Vietnam War because they feared that ending the war is meaningless if U.S. leaves and North Vietnam would just start another war in two years. So South Vietnam justifiably, in my view, try to prevent ending the war. So U.S. and South Vietnam had to go through a very difficult negotiations. And okay, just like with the, with the, with those case studies, you spend a tremendous amount of, of research. Now let's let's talk about like what's going to happen with the Ukraine situation. That's a good question, right? Go so on. if if my alliance studies has a current day implication, I, I could study about bring this model to Ukraine and the West. Technically, Ukraine is not an ally of US, it's not a NATO member country, but it could, you know, right? I mean, this war has convinced many Europeans that maybe they should do more to help Ukraine. So it could lead to an issue in which, what if, you know, to prevent nuclear war, for instance, US might consider some kind of a peace settlement with Russia you know, to, you know, to mediate the conflict. But Ukraine as a country that suffered the war might fail that compromise is not enough. And it does not do enough to protect Ukraine's security. That could lead to a conflict in which what Ukraine wants for peace might be different from what US thinks is good enough for peace. So when that happens, what would Ukraine do? And if Ukraine says no US or no NATO, what you propose is not good enough, what can 
U.S. and NATO do to placate, convince Ukraine to accept their demands? So that 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 could be a very interesting study that I should research after I finish my dissertation. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, also, alliance I- is hard. I think I think that's, that that was like my conclusion. Alliance is hard. And there's I- a phrase called alliance is like herding cats. Yeah, yeah, but I, I like this term, the difference between alliances and alignments. Um, yes, that's true. And then, uh, yeah, like, like just to conclude too with that, it's like you had the Afghan war, Americans, Afghanistan war, mm. America left, like, I'm sure the local re- residents was like, you can't leave, <laughs> we're, we're, the Taliban is going to come. Yes. Uh, so it makes sense why the, the, like, you don't want your, like, your your superpower military might to leave of course you're gonna want them to stay mm-hmm. uh but yeah it has repercussions because it's like yes the never-ending war it's just challenging i, I mean it's, it's what it is there's nothing beautiful about war or a line like uh in general it's it's just evil and i just what, what hurts me about this crisis is that there, i mean there's this whole religious element to to this conflict that i feel like a lot of people aren't talking about because i know the Ukrainian Orthodox Church left the Russian Church in 2019. Yes. No one's no one seems to be talking about that. Like, do you know more about that than me? Or oh, oh they should leave because Ukraine during the Soviet times, um, especially during Stalin time, the Ukrainian farmers received terrible treatments. Many were ch- killed during the Stalin's Great Purge. That's one thing. And there's a perception that tragically during the Soviet times. You know, maybe to survive, uh, to, co- to, 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 to receive a bare minimum survival. Russian Orthodox Church has a dark history of you know, collaboration, collaboration with the communist government. Yeah. And people know that. So when Ukraine became independent, in order to cut off from that past, Ukrainian Orthodox Church wanted to institutionally separate themselves from the Russian Orthodox Church. So there is a reason behind that, yes. So and maybe- it- and it the happened. Russification. The Russification. And this happened just a couple of years ago, officially, right? Like, I it's not like the official split. Like, you may be right, though. I would say informally, Ukrainian churches were already moving outside the Russian Orthodox orbit. Pretty, pretty much as soon as the Ukraine became independent. Got it. Got it. Yeah, yeah. It's just interesting. A lot of the overlap between all the satellite countries and and some similar themes. Um, but anyway, I think it's always important to understand that both sides, uh, to every conflict, see, seek the peace, uh, seek how we could have alliances that work. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. I mean, there's so much to think about with, with everything you brought up and uh, you just have a very unique perspective on, on things. Is that a, you want to I have a question? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> you're, 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 you're the professor. You don't have to, you don't have to. I, I guess. One thing I do, to be, okay, so, you know, I, I teach my class and obviously, you know, I read different uses like we all do. And one thing I try to remember is that, you know, wars are real to people who experience it. So I'm sure how I see war as an academic feels different from two perspectives. Someone in Russia who's experiencing sanctions, that's one perspective. And someone living in Ukraine right now who is experienced the actual bombing. Each of us see this differently and you know 
it's true that if you are experiencing death, the fear of death, it feels a lot more real to you. So I humble myself before the experience of those who are in real physical danger in Ukraine right now. Yeah, of so, course, of course. Of course, I, I, of course, I, therefore, I am sober and humble in also approaching their perspective. Yes. Yeah, I know. I think uh, as Christians, we need to always be with the ones who are suffering. Um, yes. uh, I think that's that's so important, and it's yes. just tragic when um, the Christian faith gets hijacked by political mm. stuff and not yes. go at the heart of the evils of of war. Yes, um, I mean Jesus. Those Amen. who live by the sword die by the sword, and yes. innocent people are victims of it. Yes, but it's always reminding us to be people who live by the cross. Um, uh, and when we live by the cross, man, it, it changes everything. Um, yeah. So, Jung on thanks for ending on that note because I think yes. it was. I, I, I hope we, 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 as we're analyzing the, the war, we don't lose the humanity of the evil yes. of, of of war. Uh, period. So, uh, I mean, I think the peacemaking is is the call of a Christian. We're blessed are the yes. peacemakers. So that implies uh, we need to make the peace happen, not just be passive in our pacifism, but be active in our uh, our, our ability to to bring peace. And it, and it starts locally, and then it, then it'll have ripple effects globally. Um, but I mean, as if all the people who have the label of Christian on them took that seriously, it, the yes. whole world would be transformed and talk about an alliance that would, with, with a common leader, uh, bringing a change that's not of this world, uh, but, but, but uh, internet, like globally, it's, it's just a beautiful thing to, to imagine um, uh, where, where swords will be turned into plowsh, uh, uh, plowsh. Uh, there's a the famous passage in Isaiah. It's, it's, it's actually right by, by the UN. But there's this the passage in Isaiah where swords and spears will be turned into to harvesting mm -hmm. equipment, um, and uh, I, I long for that day too. So anyway, Jung An, um, thank you for your analysis because I think it helped bring perspective, and I think your upbringing and your, your field of study uh, brought a lot of insights uh, to, to this conversation. And I think it's important to make sure all of us are getting our news from various sources and to try to get understand both sides, not saying you agree with one side, but at least get a sense of where they're coming from. Yes. Otherwise there can never be any resolutions. Um, uh, but, but yeah, this is a very good, good, good talk and it's good to just catch up brother. Yes. Thank you very much. <laughs> All right, bro. Thanks for listening, everyone. Yes. God bless. Oh.